sometimes the only way to slow down traffic is to paint a mural in the middle of the road. We were trying to beautify the whole area, and the main way, I think, for the students mainly was to put up a huge flower to slow down traffic. Yeah. This is Alfonso Perez Acosta. He's an arts educator in Richmond, Virginia, and he and his students painted a mural right in the middle of a busy intersection in their neighborhood. What, what cars did was they were coming right to here and, and going on the side because they, they didn't want to stand on the, or pass by the painting. Painting murals in the road and redirecting traffic is not all that's happening in his classroom. Rather than making his young students talk about the difficult stuff, he's bringing them the tools to let their art help them do the talking. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. This week, speaking students' language. New to this country, young people have a lot to manage. They're far away from their friends and family, adjusting to new things at home, and trying to learn a new language. All too often, we measure their progress and well-being by their ability to adapt to us. But in Alfonso Perez Acosta's classroom, remembering is valued for the kind of intelligence that it is. Acosta is an artist who's been teaching new-to-this-country middle schoolers. He's also a K-12 education fellow at Virginia Humanities. Alfonso, it seems like being a visual artist, you could easily seclude yourself and do your own artwork, but you have chosen to connect with young people and teach them how to create their own art and in the process, connect to one another. Why is that so important to you? Well, thank you. I, I love the, the question because it actually goes back to when I started teaching, you know, and when I was graduating from art school. And, and starting to work as a, as a professional artist. And really one of the, the first options that I had was to teach in a, in a private school in Colombia. Um, and, and I remember moving in that direction, you know, with, with calmness and with ease, because I understood teaching as a way of art making. You've been especially supportive of what you lovingly call new to this country young people from Latinx countries. Mm -hmm. And you've been teaching them through art, your philosophy of radical acceptance. What is radical acceptance? Well, for me, radical acceptance is actually working with um, everything that's happening in, in, in a person's life. You know, we're, we're kind of used to valuing or opening space for happiness and for improving things and for achieving stuff and for just getting better and better at things with a really good attitude. And most of the times we, we miss the other side of that, which is there's, there's sadness and there's frustration and there's pain also with young people too. And so for me, it's, it's really about using creative tools, using creative languages to open up a possibility for them to express that. And, and it really happens through a lens or through a presence of radical acceptance, which is just, we're, we're here for that. You know, we're all here for that. We're all open to that. And we're all going to just acknowledge that, investigate that, and, and see how we can work around that in, in a creative way. It makes me aware of the transition that I went through when I when I came to this country. You know, I, I immigrated in, in 2015 from Colombia to Richmond. I started working at the Sacred Heart Center and I noticed something really quickly, which was that that barrier that usually was a language barrier, but it was also a, a cultural barrier around saying things uh, that, that, that were difficult to say, you know, mainly for middle school students, which was the one, were the ones that I was working more with, middle school students who were in, in that transition of moving from one country to another, uh, having to learn English, you know, and, and at the same time, getting a little bit distant from their own first language. 
So language barriers were like a huge barrier for them. And in the middle of that, I was opening some spaces or some opportunities with with like drawing exercises or little workshops or or programs, you know, uh, giving them creative tools to communicate things in a way that didn't involve English or Spanish or or any other type of like literal language, but involving creative languages. And 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 when I when we involve creative languages, people were able to say things and express things like in a deeper way and and with more freedom than than with their other languages. I I have so many examples of students that we ask to do like a personal project, and they just go on to draw a, a, like a like a really good landscape of a specific beach or a mountain or a river of their home country, of, of Honduras or Guatemala or Mexico. And it's just beautiful to see that because it's not really that we're forcing them to do that or like or like in, intensely inviting them to do that. But we're just opening a space of acceptance for them to be able to say everything that they want to say. And that's what they pick. That's what they go to. That's where, where they go to. You were doing your teaching at the Sacred Heart Center near Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. teaching art classes for young people at a place called Casa Lapis. Is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce it? House of the Pencil? Yes. It strikes me that in many ways, this after-school program or this outside-of-school program was much richer for them than any of the regular classes. Yeah, that that's what I thought so, too. <laughs> right? that's what I That's what I try to do. Especially knowing the um, the reality of of a transition for a student like this, you know, there's difficulty to adapt to a new language and to a new a new space and to new people, and so everything works around getting them to a, a comfortable level of adaptation in in academic terms. There's also coming to a different family, for example. You know, most of them come from a, a family that they left in their their home country to a new family here, probably just with one family member, mom or dad being here, sometimes living with a different family too. So they're adapting to new half-brothers and, and sisters, new aunts and uncles. So the situation at home is also new for them. And if you want to understand the whole experience, you have to go there. And then there's a big part of that for me, which is seeing how much the, the, the students are pushed into adapting and not necessarily into remembering what they left and, and keeping right. those memories alive and keeping those connections with their, with, with their grandparents, with their friends, with their places, with their memories alive in one way or another. So I believe that what I was doing, because I was I was talking in Spanish also all the time in Casa Lapis, uh, was opening that that space or that opportunity to keep those connections alive. And and for them, it was huge. It, it was huge in a very like tender and in a very organic way. You have a core belief that art is a powerful field for emotional development. How how is art that way? How is art powerful for emotional development? I think that art is one of the main fields where we're able to express things. There's not too many ways of expressing emotions in regular life with cooking, for example, or with dressing, for example, or with talking to people in the street. It's like you you just go into safe places or working mode and you just make things make things work but then when you open up um, art possibilities or or art tools or toys in that direction you know with 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 that intention of allowing people to express express anger express pain express joy you immediately have a response that is not so predetermined because you're kind of people people understand art as going into something that they really don't know or they don't they don't have to know you know and it's just about putting colors or putting marks or just adding surfaces or texture into things that are coming from the way that you're 
feeling or the way that you're experiencing life. You know, you and your students aren't just in the classroom. You've created murals together. Tell me, for instance, yeah. about the mural on Bainbridge Street on the south side of Richmond. Yeah, th that's, a, that's a beautiful ground mural that we did with a program called ARCA. It's a youth program from uh, an organization called uh, Virginia Community Voices. And, and so the idea is to gather uh, Latin American youth and African American youth from the south side of Richmond to create public art and work on cultural reconciliation. So we went through a phase of, of talking about our cultural barriers, the ways that we thought about each other and the things that we that we needed in, in order to reconcile and be and be closer. And then we just we just went to the to the place, to the area, and worked together for a couple of days with almost 15 students on on that mural. And the idea of that mural was to create this uh, landmark between two cultures, two communities that are usually being separated, but they were coming together in the neighborhood to create something, something beautiful and something meaningful for that space. Why is it that we love murals so much in urban areas? What do they do for us? Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a very interesting and deeper impact on communities with uh, when, when you do a mural with an image, with something that, that you make with your hands and your sweat and, and you're, you're actually there, you know, building it. And then on the other side is, is some type of recognition or some type of representation that comes to the place with the painting being there, it gives them um, a sense of pride, definitely. And it gives them belonging, too, because it somehow said, as a Hamilton Glass would say, as a nod for people to, to, to connect and to be, to be present in that space. As a final thing, can I ask you to name, name a mural in Richmond that you've done and, and what you think it's communicating and who's receiving it, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say Together We Rise. Together We Rise, uh, it's a mural that I did with Noah Scallon for the Mending Walls Project back in 2020. This is a mural that's by the, the VCU police building by Broad Street. And it's a mural of two figures, two human figures, lifting up each other back to back and with their arms like crossed or entangled. So they're kind of like supporting each other back to back. And at the same time, they're surrounded by this yellow ribbon that has the names of people who have died in the U.S. of racism and, and police brutality. So we were trying to have a conversation about police brutality and how that was the main, the main problem that we, that we wanted to to engage with, but at the same time, we wanted to to do that or to focus on that in a way that it felt that this is the problem that we have to solve together and we're going to figure it out. And the only way of figuring it out is by working together and it's by supporting each other. Well, Alfonso Perez Acosta, thanks for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Alfonso Perez Acosta is an artist and an arts educator in Richmond, Virginia. He's also part of Virginia Humanities' inaugural cohort of K-12 education fellows. Nowadays, it's especially hard to tell what's real and what's fake news. How do we know? And what sources of information can we trust? Chioki Iansen is director of the Community Media Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. With good reasons, Lauren Francis took his Podcasting While Black class in her final semester of college and speaks with Chioki Iansen about his idea that media creation is a great pathway to media literacy. So we are sitting right now in the Whisper Room at the Community Media Center where you will host a group of 17 to 22-year-olds for a two-week in-person audio storytelling program at the top of July. Oh, yeah. What are you most looking forward to? 
Oh, man. So when I was this age, when I was just like a young kid in college, Mm -hmm. I was so into radio and I had no idea how to really get into radio. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know how one got to NPR. Mm -hmm. and, And now I get to tell people that age, more or less, this is how you do it. Right. So I feel like I'm offering my past self a shortcut. <laughs> right. <laughs> Though surely it wasn't that long ago that you were in undergrad. I am real old. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say then that today's students, more or less, are probably already making media? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, they're on their phones. They're they're making fun little TikToks. They're doing a, a bunch of awesome stuff. I mean, I think the problem with it to use a a phrase from uh, the photographer Sean Theodore, is that they're sharecropping on somebody else's platform, Hmm. right? Like everything that they make is subject to the whims of whatever the platform rules are. And they have to do all this like profit share that doesn't really serve them in the long run, Mm -hmm. right? That's for those who are making money off of it. You see what I'm saying? But I think what would be great is if they had a way to make media that they could properly be compensated for. Mm -hmm. And it's my hope that these skills that they're learning here are going to help them on that path. So we're doing field recording, studio recording, audio editing, storytelling, how to be a good listener. Um, We're also going to do some consultations about careers. We're also going to help them with college applications and scholarship opportunities. So it's it's a pretty good crop of stuff. So tell me a bit about what are the possibilities here at the Community Media Center? Yes. Well, our whole jam is we're here to help you tell your story better. Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to do a podcast, you have an idea for it, but you want to refine it. We can help you do that. Maybe you just need better quality equipment or like your closet recording studio is still too noisy because of the <laughs> the cars driving by. Right? right. So that's cool. We have a super thick recording booth that you can come in and record at. You just do a little uh, orientation and then we'll leave you be so you can do your thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, maybe you need some other extra help and you want to really learn how the pros do it. We've got workshops. Mm -hmm. We bring all your favorite producers of things in for workshops that you can sit in on and ask them questions, right? So there's a a lot of things that can be done here if you're interested in telling your story across media. And who can use this? Like when people say the public, is it like the I have a VCU ID public (laughs) or my cousin, brother, sister, niece, nephew went to VCU (laughs) and is going to walk upstairs with me? So... Anybody. It's fully open to the public. So that would mean VCU students, of course, but also your mama and your cousin, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. Everybody. Come on down and make a show. Everybody can come on down. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that was one of the main goals. Like, we're a public-facing institution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, college kids get all kinds of resources all the time. Right. But there's people out in the public who are dreaming they want to mm-hmm. know how to do mm-hmm. some stuff. And so the the media center is there for just like everybody, like straight up everybody. Yeah. So if you're if you're interested in telling your story, then this is this should be one of your first stops. So, you know, the building is a little daunting. So <laughs> yeah. walk me through. And we've we started this off saying we're in the whisper room. So yes. maybe people are a little afraid at this point. Yeah, it's it is hard to explain. So if you're you know, drive down Broad Street on the corner of Broad and Belvedere is a big kind of metal looking swoopy building. <laughs> that's a really good way to put it. It's very swoopy. <laughs> it's very swoopy. Yeah. Um, that's the ICA. The The ICA is so on the inside of it are all these galleries and an auditorium and a little cafe area. It's a pretty cool spot. The ICA itself is a it's a it's a gallery, which means it doesn't collect art. It only shows that new stuff. Mm-hmm. So every few months when you show up, it's a brand new exhibition that probably was never seen anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. You go to the second floor gallery. You walk to all the way to the back to a, a, a door. And inside that door is the media center. And the media center looks like 
Nothing you've ever seen. Hmm. So it appears now that the world is burning. <laughs> it's been on fire for quite a while. <laughs> yes, just a little while. So what makes it important or worthwhile to learn how to make media right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's my, my thesis on the matter. I'm a philosopher by training. And so that means I spent many years trying to teach students the tools of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, I've mostly come up against issues of media literacy. So it seems to me now that there can no longer be critical thinking without media literacy because all reflection at this point is mediated through social technology. Mm -hmm. it's, it all kind of happens on a screen. Mm -hmm. And there are aspects of the production of media that lend themselves very well to deception, to misinformation, right. to right. all these things that are issues. What I've, what I've learned in being a person that knows how to make media mm -hmm. is that I've become way more skeptical of the way that certain things manifest out there on the internet. Mm -hmm. And that skepticism, I think, can serve people, can make people less likely to be manipulated. And the best way to see that mm -hmm. is to learn how to be a good media maker, right? Mm. Um, there's this uh, example that I get from uh, Susan Sontag's book on the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. But she talks about how a, there's the photograph. You, you open the paper, you see the photograph and the caption. But she points out that, like, the caption is just a set of words under a photograph. The caption doesn't have to be true mm -hmm. to what is happening in the photograph. As mm -hmm. a matter of fact, in many cases, one of the main ways that manipulation works is that they bring a photograph from some other conflict, and then they say it's this other thing, right? But a photographer or a copy editor is already aware of that. Whenever they see something on their Instagram feed, for instance, they're going to be immediately suspicious of their relationship between the photo and right, the caption. Right. Someone like you and me who does this audio editing, like are in these like in these programs all the time, will be like, oh, okay, that seems like that was an edit. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just like kind of turns your head a little. What what was that? It's like, hold on now. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> and and so, but you but there's elements of that across all of these mm -hmm. ways of making media. Mm -hmm. So the better you are at making this stuff, the you'll be way better mm -hmm. at being able to to criticize it or like your skeptical instincts mm -hmm. will kick in. And that's a much better state of affairs than seeing something immediately having a visceral reaction to it and taking it as true. And so I know so far the media center has been focused almost exclusively on podcasts. Oh, yeah. But moving forward, will you guys focus on other forms of media too? Yes. Our goal is to touch on all aspects of media making. Mm -hmm. So it's my hope that in 2023 we'll start focusing on video and film. Okay. And I see writing workshops in the future. Mm -hmm. I see photography. I, I see all manner of things. I want to get back in the philosophical bag for a minute. Do okay. you think, like, the way that your students might not necessarily know what NPR is, right? And, like, even for me, when I say I work for a radio show, I feel like I'm telling people I'm going extinct. <laughs> like, <laughs> I notice how vulnerable I feel in that moment because I'm like, what did I just say? But I'm wondering, like, what is the specific place that you see right now for podcasts, for radio? Okay, so I think that podcasts are interesting because they provide on-demand listening without borders. And that's good for people to engage their own interests. Mm -hmm. I think that radio is important. And I think that we're all forgetting that radio is important. Uh -huh. But I think that radio is important because it serves a community. Mm -hmm. That people fire up the airwaves to tell you in this area, mm -hmm. like in the signal range, what's happening, the important stuff, the local stuff. Mm -hmm. So radio, newspapers, these things that are like maybe struggling a bit more than they used to really shouldn't be mm -hmm. because they are the source of 
local right. information. Right. And so they're losing the sense of the significance mm-hmm. of locality. That's what it seems like to me. That makes me think about how, like, a lot of um, pianists, right, especially who are trained in the church, will say that you're getting to a point now where you can't really distinguish that local sound because everyone's learning how to play the instrument on YouTube. Yeah, so I often think about it like this, like, if go-go music Mm -hmm. started tomorrow, so if go-go music was invented, like, you know, this week, would it be the sound of D.C. or would it just be a national sound? I guess it depends on the the sort of story that accompanies it. But I'm thinking of it in terms of it it had enough time to grow within mm-hmm. a community right. to then be associated with it. Right. But I think nowadays it would like show up on TikTok mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. it would be immediately national and international, if you will, and there and no one would even know. It'd be hard to even track where it came right. from, really. Right. That's just the, anyway. I, it's just a. I mean, we're thinking now about like I don't know what you would call it, like radio anthropology or or uh-huh. whatever, right? Uh-huh. Like, as I said, I'm mad old, so <laughs> I do have some romance for locality, right? But I also think that it's not just a matter of romance. I think that locality is essential for human thriving. I think that's true too. Yeah. It's for that sense of self it gives you. And I would take that a step further to say that, like, at this point in the world, it's not enough to just be where you are. You have to make a decision to engage locally. Because like you said, I mean, you yeah. can just look on TikTok every day. You can you can look towards those oh, trends. That's a good point. Yeah. Locality is no longer accidental. Yeah. You have to. You have to. You have to, be, you have to seek it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a good point. And not resent where you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we're we're lucky though because we're in a city that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now with like a hundred percent fewer Confederate monuments. Hmm. Look at that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for making time to talk with us today. Oh yeah, no problem. That was with good reason, associate producer Lauren Francis speaking with her former college professor Chioki Ianson. He's now the director of the Community Media Center at Virginia Commonwealth University, where he's a professor in the Robertson Journalism School. You may have seen him riding down the street on his motorcycle or heard him on NPR, where he's a voice of public radio underwriting. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. In the early 1900s, African-American leaders were promoting education as a tool for racial uplift. As part of that, across the country and the color line, Phyllis Wheatley branches of the Young Women's YWCA opened to serve and help educate young African-American women and girls. Cassandra Newby-Alexander took ballet classes when she was four years old at the Norfolk branch of the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA. Cassandra Newby-Alexander is now the dean of Norfolk State University's College of Liberal Arts, And she's excited about the possibilities that one of the last remaining buildings from a bygone era could have for current day needs in the community. Cassandra, tell me about that. When you were taking ballet lessons at the YWCA in Norfolk. You know, when I was about four or five years old, my mother and father had me um, actually go to the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA building, which was right around the corner from my grandparents' house, to take ballet lessons. And I remember the building being very old and, you know, kind of worn, but the ballet lessons were really, really great. And so I think I did that for about a year. Everything was still very rigidly segregated. And so that was the only place that an African-American child could go to learn ballet. And it wasn't until I was at Norfolk State 
and I'm just looking at the building constantly, that I started being concerned about its preservation. And so later on, when I was a professor at Norfolk State, and I knew that Norfolk State had acquired the building and they were using it to house some of their honor students, I was really excited about the possibilities of that building sharing its long history and becoming once again an important part of Norfolk's community. I saw a picture near the Norfolk State University campus, and it's really beautiful and from an era. Can you describe it? The The building is, of course, it was built in 1870s. So it comes from that sort of romance architecture during that period where you have the raised details on the outside of the building. And the building itself has a very complicated history. Um, It was actually constructed in 1879 when this area that's considered the Ballantyne area, that was actually segregated and only white people lived in that particular neighborhood. And so in 1879, when the building was created and it was named after Mary Kay Ballantyne, she was the wife of the man who owned all this land, um, it was an old folks home. And that continued throughout the 1920s and 30s. But it was sometime in the 1940s, right about the time of the end of the uh, Second World War, that the building was completely abandoned. And it was offered for sale to the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA that was looking for expanded space. Now, the Phyllis Wheatley Y was actually created officially in 1908, but the building itself, it just takes you back in time and it just reminds you of an era that's long gone. And in the city of Norfolk, there are not too many buildings, I think you can count them on a couple of fingers, that date back to that era. So that Phyllis Wheatley YWCA that you took ballet lessons in when you were four years old, <laughs> it was formed when in the city of Norfolk? And what was going on that led to its creation? So the YWCA, which is the Young Women's Christian Association. That was to complement the YMCA, which is the Young Men's Christian Association. That was the first one created. Uh, So as people moved into these urban settings, this space provided temporary housing for people. It provided recreational activities. It provided opportunities to learn skills, you know, all kinds of things. And so The YMCA was strictly segregated. It barred African-Americans from being members. There was a need to have a YWCA. There was one for for white women in Norfolk, just as there were numerous branches throughout the country of YWCAs. But here in Norfolk, they wanted to maintain the strict segregation. And so a whole series of YWCAs that were Phyllis Wheatley branch, YWCA started springing up beginning in 1905. And so three years later, Norfolk had its own YWCA branch. It's so interesting. I was struck and surprised by you saying, when I was taking ballet lessons there, the Norfolk area was, what? how did you put it? Strictly segregated, rigidly yes. segregated. yes. There was a definite east side, which was predominantly African-American, and a west side. And in fact, the city, starting in the late 1940s, actually changed a lot of its street structures to create this division that they wanted it not only to be an artificial division, but they wanted it to be a real, concrete, visible division. So it's actually difficult to travel from the east side to the west side because the streets that you go down for the most part are one-lane streets. Wanted to create that division or accidentally did by ignoring the community and building superhighways? No, they wanted to create that division. There was intentionality in what was done. Were you protected from that rigid and strict segregation in the sense of, as a little girl, 
were, did your family try to shield you from the hostility inherent in that? I think most African-American parents tried to shield their children from the rigid and nasty side of segregation and discrimination. And so there were just venues that we did not go. We did not go to the oceanfront in Virginia Beach because it was forbidden for African-Americans to go down to the oceanfront. So we went to City Beach, which was for African-Americans. And there were other venues that we went to. We didn't go to restaurants unless they were owned and operated by African-Americans. And so my parents made sure that I knew about our environment, that I was happy and secure and protected within our, meaning our African-American environment. And they connected, because my father was a prominent physician, they connected us with all types of people. So I had the advantage Phyllis Wheatley Branch, YWCA, started springing up beginning in 1905. Phyllis Wheatley was an African-American poet. She had been enslaved up in Massachusetts, and she published a book of poetry and was recognized throughout the world for her poetry. And so that's why they named this important institution after her. Who was it serving? Who were these young African-American women who were arriving in Norfolk who needed this place for nurturing and shelter and love? Well, you know, throughout the nation, there were young women who were coming to the cities looking for jobs, looking for opportunities, looking for a change of venue, and they became prey to a lot of people. And so women, young professional women— they would meet the trains as they were coming in or the ships as they were coming into the ports, and they would survey who was getting off that train and try to intervene so that these predators wouldn't get to these young women first. And they would bring them back to the YWCA so that the women could have a place to to live temporarily. They could learn skills. If they didn't have a profession, they could get some vocational training so that they could get a profession. They were provided food, and they were also provided opportunities for recreation and interaction with the women who lived in that community who could really help them. When did the Norfolk area YWCA's integrate? When did the Phyllis Wheatley and the White YWCA joined forces together? It was in 1974 that the decision was made to close the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA building. And it was right around that same time period that you would see the desegregation of the overall YWCA. You know, nobody wants enforced separation, but so much was also lost in terms of culture, traditions, and programs, and cohesiveness when desegregation led to the abandoning of a lot of African-American institutions, buildings, programs? Yes. In fact, you know, it's not just the attitude of individuals, but it was also the behavior of states and federal government, as well as philanthropic organizations. I remember just a few years ago when there were a number of articles that came out saying, well, why is there a need for an HBCU, a historically black college and university? And, you know, we don't have segregation anymore. Why are they needed? Well, first and foremost, the idea that they only exist because they couldn't go to a predominantly white institution is absolutely ridiculous, uninformed, and historically inaccurate. Those institutions were created to support, sustain, and celebrate African-American history and culture. It just as you don't have people asking, well, you know, why does um, uh, uh, American Catholic institutions exist? You know, universities, Notre Dame and so forth. They don't ask those questions. You know, those were created for people who were Catholic, who needed that supportive environment for their education. 
but no one asks why those institutions exist. And so African-American institutions exist for the same reason, but you see this collective effort to shut down those institutions when they provide incredible support, uh, an environment that promotes agency. Because if I'm in an environment in which the majority of people do not understand the struggles that I have, the obstacles that I face, then my perception of the world will be minimized. But if I'm in an environment that not only understands that, but provides me with the tools to not only adapt to that, but to challenge it and to have my sense of self in a very strong and powerful way. That is really critical to human development and to human expression as well as human agency. And so those organizations suffered the same kind of situation that a lot of HBCUs were faced with just a few years ago. I understand that there's a real renaissance going on with HBCUs now. Are you feeling that at NSU? Yes, there seems to be a lot more support. There are fewer people who ask why. And, you know, I'm always ready to challenge someone who says something completely (laughs) ridiculous. Uh, And and I, you know, and I try to educate and inform. I think that our society really suffers from a lack of education and understanding about our shared history. And it's so important that we stop talking about how we feel about knowing about this history and focus on knowing the history because understanding is the doorway to cooperation. Cassandra Newby Alexander, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Cassandra Newby-Alexander is the Dean of Norfolk State University's College of Liberal Arts. The Mellon Foundation has given a multi-million dollar grant to help community college students in the Richmond, Virginia area enroll at their local four-year university, Virginia Commonwealth University. Janelle Marshall is helping them do that. She's with the community college system and the new director of Pathways to the Arts and Humanities. Janelle, do you relate to the experiences of these students? I completely relate to my students. I see myself many times in the students that we serve. I am a first-generation student, and I grew up in a very wealthy part of California, even though my family and I were not wealthy. But my parents had a, a goal and a focus. Both of them were married very young. There's four kids in our family. And their goal was to make sure that each of us graduated from college. And so I knew at a very young age, and I would say even, you know, fourth, fifth grade, I knew that college was my gateway to whatever I wanted to do with my life. And um, that has served me well over the course of my life, but that is what has motivated me to be a part of this program because I understand the inability sometimes to trust your gut and not knowing what direction to go in. What kind of students is this Mellon Grant helping? I mean, are these... Are these people who were older, they've been in the workforce and come back? Are they Latinx, African-American, first generation? All of the above (laughs) and more. There's students that come who have never been in college before. There's students who have tried out a four-year and they failed their first year. And so they need to restart. There's students who are parents who have children and work full-time jobs but are determined to earn a degree. And that is the beauty of this program is that we welcome all of them in. And the goal is to make sure all of them leave successful and um, closer to, you know, whatever dream or goal or destination they have in mind. This Mellon Grant is designed to help steer community college students into the liberal arts at the four-college level to humanities and arts degrees 
Are the arts and humanities still valued in higher education these days? So much is being said about STEM and the sciences. Mm -hmm. One term I often use for students who are majoring in the arts and humanities is change makers. And I think in this modern day where we have so much happening around us, there's a lot of uncertainty with politics, equity, (laughs) diversity. And I think we are going to need leaders who not only have critical thinking skills, but can connect to the core of what humanity is. And I think the arts and humanities create students that can step into those roles and can come up with creative solutions to really, really complex problems. You've taught for six years at John Tyler Community College in the Mass Communications Mm -hmm. degree program. You've helped so many students go on to four-year degrees at VCU, which has an excellent Mass Communications degree program. How is this Mellon Grant helping more of those students get in who might have had a rougher road? Yeah, I think one of the challenges students face when they start out at a community college is transferring. And it's really about this program is focused on creating a clearer and smoother pathway for them. So sometimes they get into the community college and they're just not sure, what am I doing here? You know, I know I have to take classes. I know I have to push towards this degree. But once I leave here, am I going to have the tools I need to be successful at a four-year? And we're somewhere between 80 and 90% of the participants in our program end up finishing their associate's degree and transferring to either VCU or another four-year school, which is just a phenomenal uh, amount of students. Are you pretty sure they're doing well once they get there? They're not washing out? Well, that's the other beauty of our program is they don't, just because they transfer to VCU doesn't mean they leave the Pathways program. So they, we still create additional programming for them while they are students at VCU. Um, so one of the things we're working on is an internship fair and helping them obtain internships while they're at VCU. We also have a peer mentor program where the students who have finished at the two-year and have already transferred to four-year serve as mentors for the students who are currently at community college, so it gets them connected. And um, and we're also working on a mentorship program for those students who are at VCU that can connect to mentors either within the industry that they're looking to go into or connect with a faculty mentor or someone that's in the graduate school at VCU. CU if they're thinking about pursuing an additional degree once they're done. So we don't leave them just because they've graduated from the community college. We want them to stay connected. Can you give me an example of one student who you can really see this grant made a difference for? Oh, gosh. I, there's so many. Right. Um, there's one student uh, in particular. I won't share her name, but she uh, was a mentee of mine and was also my advisee when I was teaching at Tyler and then was also a student in my class. And this story kind of always tears me up every time I I share it. But um, when I first met her, I had to meet over Zoom because it was right at the height of the pandemic. And we logged into the Zoom meeting and I'm waiting for her and she shows up and she kind of gasps right when she sees me and I said, you know, is everything okay? And she goes, I'm just so glad you're black. And she was a young black uh, student. And I got a little teary-eyed. I had to get myself together. And, um, you know, I said, well, I'm glad I could be here to to assist you. And so we ended up having a great conversation. I immediately connected her with the Pathways program. And it has been her catalyst. She, you know, had a very challenging background personally with her family, but she has pushed through. She has four, I think, four classes left in her associate's degree, and then she's transferring to VCU. She's interested in mass communication, and um, she has flourished as 
individually, you know, emotionally, personally, she has flourished as a student. And I have been very blessed to be able to see that in person. But I think even more so, it's the power of the Pathways program and the fact that she was fully supported on every side throughout her journey. So uh, she is just one of many success stories. Um, But I think what the overarching theme is for a lot of our students is support. They know that there are people that are there to encourage them, to provide them with resources, to answer their questions, you know, tangible support, but also financial support since they receive a stipend for being part of our program. It it really just serves as um, a reminder to them to keep going, to keep pushing, and to reach even higher than they even, you know, had expectations for. Janelle Marshall, what a fabulous administrator and mentor you are. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much. Janelle Marshall is Director of Pathways to the Arts and Humanities in the Virginia Community Colleges System. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from the Lumina Foundation, committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available for all. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance and to Maynard Scales for engineering at Norfolk State University's WNSB. Thanks also to the Virginia Public Media Community Media Center, where some of this episode was recorded. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.